You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, listeners. This week, we're launching our podcast on December 1st, which is two days after the United States defeated Iran in the World Cup, 1-0 if you're counting. Shortly thereafter, on the streets of Tehran, protests erupted of sorts, celebrating the loss by the Iranian team within Iran. These protests were directed at the regime in Iran, apparently, because rumors circulating in Iran, according to reports on CNN, BBC, and other Western outlets, suggest that the families of the players were threatened by the regime in Iran with what could happen if they did not win. This podcast today is about what could happen if the regime doesn't win. So it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Raham Alvandi. He's an associate professor of international study at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's also the author of a very wonderful book, Nixon, Kissinger, and the Shah, the United States and Iran in the Cold War. And this book was, of course, selected by the Financial Times as one of the best history books of 2014. If you've ever read the Times, it's discerning. So that's quite an endorsement. Most recently, he is the editor of The Age of, I'm going to butcher this, so he's going to help me, Arimer, the late Pahlavi Iran and its global entanglements. Dr. Alvandi, thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Always happy to talk about my favorite topic, which is modern Iranian history. It's a fascinating topic. So introduce us, if you would, to the Pahlavis and how they came to rule Iran. The Pahlavis were the last royal dynasty of Iran, the last in a long line of dynasties stretching back two and a half thousand years. But they were not really particularly royal. I mean, the founder of the dynasty, Reza Shah, was a military officer in the Cossack Brigade, a military outfit that had been created by the Russians at the turn of the century. And he sort of rose through the ranks, was a very, very capable officer. And in 1921, he seized power in a bloodless military coup at a time when Iran was really in disarray. And he was encouraged to do so by the British, who wanted to sort of pull their chestnuts out of Iran in the aftermath of the Second World War and just wanted a strong ruler who'd bring some sort of stability to Iran. But he also had the support of most of the Iranian intelligentsia who were very worried about the state of the country. I mean, Iran at that point in history was one of a handful of countries in Asia and Africa that were never colonized. Iran had managed to maintain its independence in the age of empires, in the age of European empires, and was sort of wedged in between the Russian empire to the north and the British Empire in India and the Persian Gulf to the south and to the east. Iranian statesmen pretty much throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th century played this game of balancing the great powers off one against another in order to preserve Iran's very precarious um, independence. And they were pretty successful at doing that. And so the Pahlavis, really their reign from 1921 all the way through till the Iranian Revolution of 1979, that was in many ways a sort of golden age for Iran in the sense that Iran was able to re-establish the control of the central government over all of its territory. It was a period of relative peace. I mean, Iran was not at war with any other country you know, during that entire period. It was a period of 
rapid economic growth, huge demographic and social change. And it was a period in which Iran really for the first time since, oh, maybe going back to the Nadir Shah and his conquests of India in the 18th century, I mean, it was really the first time that Iran was able to actually project power beyond its borders and actually become a major global player on all sorts of issues, from regional security in the Persian Gulf to the politics of oil, to developing a nuclear industry, to, I mean, you name it. By the end of the 70s, the Iranians were sending their naval ships all the way to Australia and Mauritius. It was, it was a long way from the country that the Pahlavis inherited in 1921, where, where you had a central government that could barely function in Tehran, let alone anywhere else in the country. So it was, you know, the Pahlavi era was a period of tremendous change for Iran. And it was the sort of formative period. You know, the Iran of today is very much a product of that Pahlavi era. All right. Well, I'd ask you then to also educate our listeners, not all of whom will be familiar with the fact that there was an actual invasion of Iran by Britain and the Soviet Union. And the purpose for that, of course, as I believe that almost all things warring have to do with the economy, oil and rail access to the Persian Gulf and the Caspian Sea. Can you talk a bit about that, the Lend-Lease Agreement And I suspect many people will not have a working memory of the role Stalin played in Azerbaijan and how that would relate to these sort of light-footed skills that the Iranian dynasty was developing in order to manage this incredible tension, given their geography. Iran has a very, very sensitive geography. You know, it sits on the oil-rich Persian Gulf. It borders in the north with the Caspian Sea and the former Russian empire than the Soviet Union. And so it's sort of the crossroads between Asia uh, and Europe. And so it's, it strategically has always been very, very important. Iran itself has also, of course, been the center of world empires, you know, stretching back to the Achaemenids and the Sasanians and the Safavids and, and so on. So this is by no means a sort of backwater of global politics. This is somewhere where the fate of empires and nations has been determined. Once, you know, the Iranians at the the time of the Second World War, well, they had already been invaded once during the First World War and survived that. And now, uh, you know, by the time you get to the 1940s, they found themselves again in a very precarious situation. As uh, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the, the oil of Iran became absolutely, you know, vital strategic prize for the Allied powers. And on top of that, Iran's land access from the Persian Gulf through to the Soviet Union was vital for the Allies to be able to supply the Soviet Union with the Lend-Lease aid um, that they needed in order to defend themselves against Hitler's Germany. The Iranians under Reza Shah, the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, the father of the last Shah, their policy was one of neutrality. And if you can imagine from an Iranian point of view, they didn't particularly want the allies to win the war. The greatest threat to Iran came from the British Empire and from the Soviet Union. So an allied victory would not play out very well for Iran, whereas Germany was a distant power that had no colonial or imperial role in the Middle East. And so the sympathies of Iranians, and I think many people throughout the region, was with Germany. But the Iranians adopted an official position of neutrality, which meant that 
there were many German advisors in Iran. Iran was doing huge amount of business with Germany. There's a lot of German investment in Iran. And this became a sort of pretext for the Allies to invade Iran in, in 1941 and to depose Reza Shah and install his very young son, 21-year-old son, Mohammad Reza Shah, on the throne of Iran. And it was really touch and go as to whether even the Pahlavi dynasty would survive or, in fact, whether Iran would survive the war. And it's really only thanks to very, very cunning diplomacy by Iranian statesmen who didn't really have much of a hand to play. I mean, they had a barely functioning government. They had no army. They had no wealth. All they had really was a, a government on paper and a, and a sort of nominal international independence, you know, but they played that very well. At the Tehran conference in 1943, where Churchill and Roosevelt uh, and Stalin uh, were present in Iran, they secured an agreement from the big three that Iran would maintain its independence after the war and that the great powers would commit themselves to that. That was really the beginning of, of America, of America's role in Iran, which was a reluctant one. Because from the American point of view prior to that, Iran was really considered part of the British sphere of influence. But Franklin Roosevelt had a sense that as the world changes, as we go into this new era of the United Nations and of a new world order that's supposed to be based on the rule of international law, perhaps Iran can be an example of what the United States can do in the world. Here's a country, a very rich history, rich civilization, which has fallen on hard times, perhaps with American help, it can develop itself into a strong independent country that would also act as a bulwark against Soviet penetration down into the Persian Gulf region. And, and that was an accomplishment for Iranian statesmen who had been sort of trying to entice Americans into Iran, thinking that, you know, the United States is this distant superpower long way away from Iran. So that's a, that's a good ally to have and that can help Iran preserve its independence against the British and the Soviets. That was basically the strategy of the Pahlavis of Mohammad Reza Shah throughout his reign, is to look to the United States as this distant superpower that could help Iran achieve its aspirations within the region. And he was largely successful at doing that, although not without tremendous cost as well. It's a lovely description. It's a visual as well, a government on paper. So that explains how the relationship began. But I'd like to move forward in time just a bit. There were two coups that occurred, one in 1953 and another in 1958. I think the largest amount of discussion is always around what happened in 1953. Please educate us on what precipitated those coups, what they involved, and sort of what you perceive, based on your obviously extensive lifetime of research, was the United States' role in both? Well, Iran was in a very, very precarious situation in the 50s, late 40s and 50s. I mean, first of all, the Soviet Union had occupied northern Iran during the Second World War, and Stalin basically outstayed his welcome. Under the agreements that the Allies had signed with Iran, the, the Allied powers were supposed to vacate Iran six months after the end of the hostility six months after the peace. So the British and the Americans left and the Soviets were still there in northern Iran. And that, that was really one of the first major crises of the Cold War. In fact, it was the first international crisis that was put before the UN Security Council after it was created, was the Iran crisis. And really, with the help of the Truman administration, the Iranians were able to force Stalin to withdraw from northern Iran. 
And it was a bit of a humiliation for the Soviet Union and for Stalin. And it was exactly the kind of balancing strategy that the Iranians intended to play in the context of the Cold War. You have to remember, Iran had a 1,500 kilometer border with the Soviet Union. This huge superpower just across its northern borders. At that point in the 50s, you know, the United States had no presence in the Middle East. This was a British, still very much a British sphere of influence. And the British controlled the Iranian oil industry in the south of the country. You know, they owned the whole of the Iranian oil industry, what used to be called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, what's today uh, BP. So the Americans were a very attractive option for the Iranians as an ally. There was a great deal of sympathy in the United States for Iran, particularly during the Truman administration. They saw Iranian nationalism as a, a liberal phenomenon. They saw sort of Iranian aspirations for liberal constitutionalism as very much in line with the ideals of the American Revolution, of the American Constitution. The US was quite sympathetic. There was a lot of economic aid that went to Iran, military assistance that went to Iran. But as the Cold War heated up, there was more and more of a fear that the Communist Party in Iran and the Soviet Union just across the border to the north might come to dominate Iran and take control of its very important oil reserves. I mean, just to give, put this in context, the Iranian oil refinery in Abadan, the huge Iranian oil refinery that was built by the British, this was the single most valuable overseas possession of the British government. And it was the largest oil refinery in the world. And this was a hugely important strategic asset. Unfortunately, when the Iranians nationalized their oil industry under the premiership of Mohammad Mossadegh, who was a very liberal, democratic MP who had always advocated for Iran's independence and for a constitutional sort of parliamentary democracy in Iran. This sparked a crisis with Britain, who of course didn't want to give up Iranian oil, which was incredibly important, lucrative asset for them at a time when the British economy was doing extremely poorly. And so the Americans were confronted with this situation where they had to choose sides between their British allies who were struggling, British empire that was in retreat, and Iran, a country with a strong nationalist leader, Mossadegh, that was trying to assert its independence from the British Empire. And under Truman, they very much sided with Iran and tried to pressure their British allies to reach a deal with Mossadegh. But with the change of administration in the United States, the election of the Eisenhower administration, with the Dulles brothers coming into government, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, there was a change in, in the point of view in Washington. There was a fear that if this crisis was allowed to go on, if the Iranian government became crippled, that this would create an opportunity for the Iranian communists with the support of the Soviet Union to seize power. And so they basically backed a British plan to overthrow Mossadegh, a covert operation that was codenamed by the CIA Operation Ajax, Operation Boot by the Special Intelligence Service. And it was the sort of original sin of the United States in Iran, you know, that the fact that the US chose to support British imperial interests in Iran over a liberal democratic government that was simply trying to assert Iran, Iran's sovereignty, you know, that was a huge blow to the prestige of the US in Iran, which had always been seen as a country that was on the right side of history, that was different to the European imperial and colonial powers. And so there was this kind of disillusionment with, with America 
after the 1953 coup. That sort of carried on into the 1950s and 1960s. But of course, you know, that was also the height of the Cold War, the Berlin crises, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And for Iran, there was really no option of being a neutral state because Iran was a frontline state in the Cold War. In the same way that Germany was a frontline state in Europe, you know, Iran was on the front lines of the Cold War in the, in the Middle East. There was a real possibility that what happened in, I don't know, in Romania or Hungary could also happen in Iran. Iranian nationalists, for better or worse, still look to the US as a potential ally against the threat of, of communism and of the Soviet Union. So in 1958, when in the midst of pretty severe domestic political and economic crisis, there was talk of a military coup by General Barani, who was the head of the army's um, intelligence section, G2 intelligence section, the coup plotters approached the Americans and said, you know, how would you feel if we, if we do this, if we remove the Shah or, or if we force the Shah to appoint a, a reformist government, you know, what would be the attitude of the US? And the Americans, by that point, um, we're talking about the Eisenhower administration, you know, they got very nervous and they were very skeptical that there was really any alternative to the Shah in Iran and they tipped off the Shah. And so uh, that coup didn't get anywhere. And in fact, Barani was arrested and the plotters were rounded up. But the view was that, look, you know, Iran's looking pretty shaky. And the Shah is by no means safe on his throne. And if you think about all the monarchies in the Middle East that were toppled throughout the 1950s and 60s, in Iraq in 1958, in Yemen in 1962, um, before that, in, of course, Nasser's coup in Egypt in 1952. So there was a sense that the dominoes were falling in the region and the tide was turning in favour of these radical revolutionary Republican regimes. But the Shah managed to hold on with the help of the United States, particularly with the help of the Eisenhower administration. A lot of money flowed into the Iranian army. The Iranian security service, Sabak, was established in 1957 with the help of the US. And so the Shah was able to consolidate his position. But that also meant an increasingly autocratic regime where all power was more and more and more concentrated in the hands of one person. And of course, that kind of regime also has its risks and fragility and drawbacks, um, which didn't really become evident until 1978-79. Let's move just a bit forward in time, though. President Kennedy had some views over what was needed in Iran, but he was assassinated before he was able to realize what he had wanted. Can you talk a little bit about how the relationship changed in terms of the view of the Pahlavi dynasty during his short tenure as president? Well, Ke Kennedy, you know, was a very different man to the sort of Eisenhower Dulles generation. You know, he was a much younger man. He had much more progressive views about the third world. He saw nationalism in the third world as a force that did not have to be antagonistic towards the United States. And that actually, it was in the interest of the United States to kind of be on the right side of history in places like Iran or in India or in Egypt. And he, unlike many of the Republicans at the time who saw these kinds of forces of nationalism as natural allies of the Soviet Union or sort of bordering on communism, you know, Kennedy didn't see things in, in, in those terms. And he spoke of the, the new frontier. And his argument was that the United States should play the role of 
aiding the development of these countries and ameliorating the conditions in the third world that would give rise to communist regimes. So one of the things that Kennedy, you know, really strongly advocated for in many places was, for example, land reform in many of these kind of agrarian economies. And so in Iran, they, they did the same. I mean, there was a lot of, he did bring pressure on the Shah to carry out social and economic reforms. But at the end of the day, there was also a sense that, well, there's not really much of a political alternative to the Shah. And if we put too much pressure on the Shah, we risk actually toppling him and he may well be replaced by somebody who's even less desirable, you know, perhaps a, a military figure. They didn't really have much faith in the sort of Mossadegh type Iranian nationalists who might take over from the Shah. And so even though Kennedy did put some pressure at the end of the day, it was really ultimately a continuation of business as usual with the condition that the Shah would carry out some kind of reforms, which the Shah called his white revolution. These were a whole series of reforms that were implemented that included land reform, giving women the right to vote, literacy programs, um, many, many sort of important reforms that did actually have a pretty significant impact on Iranian society, but also generated quite a lot of backlash, um, particularly from religious conservatives. So these reforms are undertaking the white revolution, land reform, women's rights, things that we associate positively in the United States with an advancement in terms of a culture as well as democracy and empowering a population to make better decisions than they might otherwise. I imagine in Iran, the view of the Pahlavis was going to change because they had such a grip on power. But into this walks Henry Kissinger. What can you tell us about how Henry Kissinger changed the relationship with Iran and what impact he had as a statesman on the relationship between Iran and the United States and the Soviet Union and its other neighbors? The Iran that Kissinger faced when he came into office in 1969 was so different from the Iran that I was just talking about, you know, the Iran of the 1950s or even of the early 60s. For one thing, the Shah had completely consolidated his position within Iran. There was really very little domestic opposition left. Most of the opposition was either in prison or in exile. Ayatollah Khomeini was in exile by this point in Iraq. Iran's oil income was steadily increasing, and that gave the Iranian state a lot of resources to be able to carry out the development plans that the Shah had, and also the ability to purchase huge quantities of American weapons which gave the Shah more and more independence and freedom on the international stage. At the same time, there was a kind of perception in the era of Vietnam that the United States was in decline. And so the relative power of these two countries had shifted. Iran wasn't anymore this kind of client state that the Americans could dictate to, or it, it was now more, I would argue, a partner in the Cold War. And so this was a godsend for Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, because they were trying to avoid any more Vietnams. The, Nixon, the Nixon doctrine was one of not intervening in every third world conflict, but instead relying on local partners like Iran, like Indonesia, like Brazil, um, various other countries, you know, giving them the means to be able to roll back communist influence or Soviet influence in their own regions. And the Shah was very, very keen to play that role in the in the Persian Gulf region and in the wider Middle East. 
And so those three men, you know, there was a real meeting of minds between them and a genuine kind of mutual respect. At one level, when it comes to these grand geostrategic visions, but also at a personal level, because you have to remember the Shah really, really resented the sort of Kennedy and what he called his Harvard boys, the sort of elites of the East Coast in the United States who thought they knew better than him, you know, how he should run his country. And, and these were the same people that Nixon and Kissinger despised, you know, and the same people who had heavily criticized them for, for the Vietnam War. And so there, you can see in the tone of the, the, the meetings that they have that this is more than just a, a relationship of convenience. I mean, this is a genuine, I would say, friendship in a way. So, yeah, so that really blossomed in the, in the 1970s. And Kissinger was absolutely crucial to that. He, he understood the Shah. He understood Iran's ambitions and he wanted to encourage them. And he faced a lot of opposition from within the ranks of the State Department and Department of Defense and the CIA, all of whom were very nervous about this idea of putting America's eggs all in one basket. There was a particular concern in the Department of Defense that, you know, with these huge contracts, military contracts going to Iran, this huge number of American military personnel in Iran helping the Iranians run these very advanced, you know, weapon systems. What would happen if Iran actually found itself in a war with, say, Iraq or, or one of the other Soviet-backed regimes in the region? You know, would the United States get dragged into another Vietnam-style conflict? But really, the Shah had such incredible resources at his disposal that he could make demands of the Nixon administration that, you know, that he couldn't have done at any previous point in history. And it was very, very difficult to say no to him at that point. But, you know, that began to shift, of course, with Watergate, with Nixon's resignation, and, and also with the general kind of disillusionment within, within the United States, with the kind of realpolitik foreign policy of Henry Kissinger, that tended to completely ignore human rights concerns and to privilege completely these kind of Cold War geostrategic considerations. And so even though during the Carter administration, there was not really a, a huge shift in the substance of US-Iran relations. I mean, the weapons were still being sold to Iran, massive new contracts were signed, the oil was still flowing to the United States. But at the level of rhetoric, and certainly at the level of public perception, there was a sense that something had shifted from the Nixon-Kissinger era. And so Iran, you know, Iran became very much tied up in those big changes that were taking place within the United States in the 1970s. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.